Welcome everybody to the She Can Fix It podcast. I hope you all are staying safe during this time. This month's episode consists of a great interview with Dr. Jill Flanagan. Dr. Flanagan is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Children's Healthcare in Atlanta who received additional training at the International Center for Limb Lengthening. I wanted to interview Dr. Flanagan to understand her passion for treating patients with limb deformities and her expertise in limb lengthening and reconstruction. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Flanagan, and I'm very excited to share our conversation. I hope you all enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Jill Flanagan. Dr. Jill Flanagan, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm very excited to speak with you, and thank you so much for joining me in these uh, difficult times that is the coronavirus. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. I feel honored to uh, to be able to speak uh, in this podcast. Awesome. So Dr. Flanagan, in your own words, can you just provide us with a little bit of your background, where you went to medical school, residency, and beyond? Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, I'm usually a person that sticks to my guns. So um, I decided for college, med school, and residency all to stay in the same place. So I was at the George Washington University for 13 years. Um, I was wow. on the gymnastics team and then helped coach the team while I was in medical school. Oh, nice. And then it was it was awesome. But for fellowship, I figured I should leave for a year. And my intent was to come back um, and then live in D.C. for a while and work over at Children's National. Um, but I did my fellowship in Atlanta at, at uh, Scottish Rite. And then thought, oh, I like it here too. So I've been in Atlanta now for the last 10 years. Um, cool. And that, that's it. That's my life. <laughs> I didn't know you were a student athlete. You were a, a gymnastics on the gymnastics team? At, at George Washington. Mm-hmm. Nice. How did you feel that being a student athlete prepared you for medical school and just your career as an orthopedic surgeon? So I think the student, being a student athlete obviously has its merits, but it was my coach in particular um, who it was extremely influential. Um, so every single one of my teammates, um, I think one started her own company in D.C., um, others are traders in New York City, all are extremely successful women in their own right. Mm-hmm. So. And that is hands down to our coach who is still the coach at GW now. Um, So I think it's important to surround yourself with good mentors. So when you find good people, you just, you stick to them. But Mm -hmm. Margie taught us the importance of just discipline, hard work, honesty, integrity, and just lots of different life lessons along the way, which if you can survive her program, you can pretty much do anything. She was incredible. Ah, that's phenomenal. Um, I was a student, I was a soccer player at UCLA and I completely agree with you that the, you know, just the lessons that you learned, if you can, if you can survive being a student athlete and all the commitments that it involves, you're just basically setting yourself up for success down the line. Ah, that's awesome. So I know that you went on to specialize in pediatric orthopedics, and I was wondering if you could mm-hmm. talk to us about why you decided to specialize out of all of the pediatric, or sorry, out of all of the subspecialties, Orthor- why pediatric right. orthopedics, yeah. So along the same theme as sticking to your guns, um, I actually said I was gonna be a biology major in college when I was in ninth grade. 
and I became a biology major in college. I said I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon when I was seven, but I said I was going to do peds ortho very specifically when I was a third year medical student. Wow. And um, it's a sh- interesting story. I'm usually not super verbose, but um, gosh, this would have been about 20 years ago. You're my, you might be too young, but back at that time in DC, um, there were these serial killers and they would go out on hunting sprees in the middle of the day. And it was during my two week ortho rotation as a third year student. Um, I mean, it was, it was scary to go get gas because they usually shot people at gas stations. They shot, killed somebody at a Home Depot five minutes from my apartment. So oh, wow. here I am wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon since I was seven and now it's 20 years later and I'm finally on my ortho rotation and it was scary. The, um, at the attending I was with was not very nice and didn't pay attention to me. So I actually skipped most of the rotation and I still got a pass, which is not the best thing to do. Um, <laughs> but I was really afraid for my life. And so yeah. um, I was pretty disappointed. Fast forward my next rotation, I did pediatrics. And I, as a med student, had to do a little presentation like you do as a student. And I did a presentation on hip dysplasia. And so my preceptor pulled me aside and said, I've been doing this for over 20 years. No one has ever given a talk on hip dysplasia. So what's, what's your deal? And I told her I wanted to do orthopedics and I just got off rotation. Now I wasn't sure. And also, hopefully this happens less now. I mean, I'm petite, five feet tall. Even my best friends, my dean told me, um, you're, you're too small to do orthopedics. You shouldn't be doing it. And these are my mm-hmm. best friends, deans from med school. But this particular pediatrician said, well, I really think you should meet Dr. Tosi over at Children's in DC. So you should spend some time with her before you make your decision. Hmm. I said, okay. So I reached out to my dean, the one that said I shouldn't do ortho and said, can I do a two week elective doing peds ortho? It's not listed in our book, but I'd like to be able to do it. And he let me do it. And my first patient with Dr. Tosi was a 20 year old with a club foot deformity. And she just whispered it in my ear. So one paid attention to me. And then two whispered in my ear and just told me she casted him when he was a child. And I thought that was super cool. And I said, I'm sold, this is it. Mm-hmm. And that's what, now what I do. And she's still my mentor to this day. Oh, that's, that's my, awesome. It's a cool story. Yeah. yeah. So that is why I do what I do. Oh, fantastic. Um, I would like to highlight one of the conditions that you as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon treat and that is osteogenesis imperfecta. Um, Can you provide our listeners with just a brief description of what osteogenesis imperfecta is and how you as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon treat patients with OI? Sure, so Dr. Tosi is one of the world experts on OI, so that is certainly where I get my interest from. Um, But osteogenesis imperfecta is for the most part a collagen disorder. And so type one collagen in particular most commonly is in the bones, but it's in cartilage. So lots of hearing problems, joint issues, but classically it's fractures and deformity. So some, and it's different levels of severity. So my job is the orthopedic surgeon. I'm usually the one that knows more about it than even pediatricians. So the child's born with OI, sometimes they present with fractures. They end up seeing me in the office and then I'm more of the quarterback, so to speak, of talking to their pediatricians getting them into an endocrinologist for some bone strengthening medications. And then as the surgeon, oftentimes with a more moderate to severe OI, um, correcting their deformities and then putting rods in to help prevent the deformities from occurring. And it is 
phenomenal. It is super rewarding. Um, the, mm-hmm. the patients are awesome. The parents are awesome. Um, and I, I think that is my calling to, to treat these children. Wow, that's awesome. Can you provide us with the unique challenges that come with treating patients with OI, both in the clinic as well as in the operating room? Um, the clinic challenges, so initially, um, there's different stages. Um, so the babies, our part about babies is obviously educating parents and they do fantastic, but there's not a whole lot I can do. I can't do operations on babies. We just don't have the right implants and then the, the, the surgeries will fail because they outgrow them in a couple of months and I don't want to do too many operations. So I think part one is just trying to train the parents to be good parents to teach how teach the parents how to split their children so they're at home. And then also a lot of what I do is anxiety management. So for parents and for the kids. So when parent, when the kids are younger, I remember one mom said to me, she goes, I don't know how to hold my baby. I don't want to break him. Um, and so to help them get through that and then also still allow them to be a child, let their kids go to school, let them have as normal childhood as they can. So it's a lot of that kind of teaching. And then mm-hmm. for the OI kids, as they get older, it's the same thing. There's, some of them have not enough anxiety and they do things like ATVs they shouldn't be doing. And then the others are too anxious and don't do anything and they're so afraid of fracturing. So right. it's a lot of anxiety management related to fractures, which is common for all of just osteoporosis in general. Mm. So those are nice. some unique challenges. Nice, nice. And I, back in late March, uh, during the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, you did this amazing YouTube Q&A for the Osteogenesis Imperfecta Foundation, um, where mm-hmm. it was basically the orthopedic perspectives on OI during the COVID-19 pandemic. And right. it was an amazing seminar because it was you and two other female pediatric surgeons um, right. talking about OI and helping to answer questions, provide some perspective from what you all had been doing to basically change your practice because of what the coronavirus has done to our healthcare system. Um, one of the cool aspects of the seminar was the idea of having parents splint um, the children at home, which I thought was just this amazing uh, practice. And I was wondering if you can expand on that practice. So do the parents early on in the years learn how to split these fractures? So um, the one of the best known OI clinics is in Omaha, Nebraska. So Dr. Wallace was on that uh, broadcast and she's one of the orthopedic surgeons in Omaha. They actually have a great um, video just on um, splinting in general. A lot Mm -hmm. of what we do here in Atlanta is um, there are several moms that their children are now older and they'll help out younger moms. So it just happened last week, a baby broke his femur and one of the more seasoned moms went out to that house and splinted their baby for them. And then I saw the baby two days later. It keeps them out of the ER, which not even just in a COVID time. I mean, I don't want a child to spend their whole childhood in the ER. Um, And so... We teach the parents what to do. We, mm-hmm. I try to let, ask them to let me know when a break happens so I can document it. Because what you don't want is anybody, be, anybody being accused of non-exile trauma because one of the right. indicators is de- delayed treatment of medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and children with OI can certainly be victims of non-exile trauma as well. So just because their bones are brittle doesn't necessarily mean it's self-inflicted. Right. I have, or in, parent-inflicted or caretaker-inflicted. I've been fortunate, I have not 
had any suspicions whatsoever any of my families here they're phenomenal but oh, again same time if we can keep them if i can get them comfortable quickly so we have medicines for pain at home they splint at home and then they come in a couple of days later we'll x-ray if we need to sometimes we don't even x-ray babies if we know it's broken an x-ray is not going to change my management whatsoever and i don't want to radiate a baby if i don't need to right no that's awesome and so can you talk about your mentor and how she inspired you to pursue and continue um, just your treatment of patients with OI? So, I mean, again, I think having men, men, several mentors um, is key. Um, and then just with Dr. Tosi, um, she mostly just got me inspired to see her working with these families when I was in residency. Um, when I was a fellow, one obviously I had a, already an interest in doing this. And um, I remember when I first started, my most of my families at that time were go, still going to Omaha, Nebraska. And I figured, well, what does Atlanta, Georgia have? What does Atlanta, Georgia not have that Omaha, Nebraska does? Because it's far, it's expensive. Um, and we're a bigger city. Mm -hmm. um, but with some of the help from Dr. Tosi, she um, encourage me to become a member of Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. So hopefully most women, if they're listening to this, are RJOS <laughs> members. Right. But with that, with that membership, so she was my initial sponsor. Um, I was a med student, I think a fourth year student when I got to go to the academy meeting. And then my first year in practice through RJOS, I won a Bone Health Traveling Fellowship. And oh, so congrats. I went to Omaha, Nebraska. Thank you. And saw why my families went there. It was incredible. And I went to Montreal where lots of other medications were initially started as well. So I was able to do a bone health traveling fellowship and really learn the trade and meet the people. Um, mm. So again, that was just paramount. Um, and again, just keeping in touch with her over the years, there's an OI scientific meeting that's invite only that she's helped me get into. Um, so again, it's, you need mentors, I think also to help get your foot in the door, but you gotta obviously use them wisely. Don't harass them too much. Uh, right. The ones that are genuine are certainly going to try to help you out. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to pursuing a fellowship in pediatric orthopedics, you also underwent specialized training at the International Center for Limb Lengthening to become an expert at limb lengthening and reconstruction. I was hoping you can provide our listeners with a brief description of the niche field of limb lengthening and reconstruction and why you wanted to become an expert in this field. Sure. So um, my backup career, if ortho, if ortho didn't work out, I was going to be a high school calculus teacher. And <laughs> so the analysis that comes in with deformity and lengthening, um, it really goes hand in hand. That's how my brain works. Mm -hmm. um, and especially being someone five foot tall, to talk to pa patients about making them taller, um, you know, they, they can appreciate that. So right. um, I'm just a little jealous I couldn't do it to myself. Um, <laughs> but it, it just, it's some of those things, I'm not the most um, eloquent speaker, I'm definitely not a good writer, but my life has always been, it just what feels right. The first fixator I ever put on, I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Um, right. And I just, it just, I think we tend to be good at what we like and we're, we like what we're good at. And so to me, like, uh, I don't know how you are on your, if, how you, if you've done hand yet, but me and hand did not get along in training. I just don't understand <laughs> it. It's too complex. Um, but spine I understood 
And right. I did I did do scoliosis surgery for a long time. I just stopped last year because I wanted to more pursue deformity and lengthening. And mm-hmm. OI, that's limb deformity as well. So I'm using the same analysis for limb deformity on my OI children as well. But right. lengthening reconstruction, it's really neat being in a niche field um, with the same set of people. You, you get to know them, you get to be really good at something, mm-hmm. and it really gives you the opportunity to set yourself apart, which I think is important, especially in some competitive markets. But obviously, yeah, you have to like it. Um, right. They're, they're challenging operations. They're challenging post-operative courses. Um, mm-hmm. The complication rate's pretty high, so you have to have pretty thick skin to be able to handle it. But right. it's e- equally or more rewarding because of that at the same time. Hmm. How did you initially get into it? Because I feel like it's such, it's not something everybody knows about. So it's almost as though you kind of got to know somebody in order to really get into it. How did you first kind of take those steps into the field? So um, I remember when I put my first fixer on. So sometime, obviously, as a resident, um, probably on my P's rotation. Um, so I didn't know how much I enjoyed it. Then my chief year, my attending was truly Ilizarovian, went to um, Russia, learned the Ilizarov techniques, and he would post cases for me, even on Friday night at midnight to put on an Elizarov, which would take five hours. Um, but I did it and I didn't right. mind being there. So for chief resident, midnight, elective night, not on call when you're on call Q2. And I'd still did it and loved it. Um, yeah. As a fellow, I scrubbed every frame that was available. And it just knew that it was something that I was good at that I wanted to uh, continue to do. So the idea of going to Baltimore for me was super simple because I trained in DC and I was born at Sinai where the uh, Wim Center is. So again, I think the uh, who you know can be really important. Um, so Dr. Herzenberg, I believe is the director still there. I could be wrong. Um, don't quote me on that, but he's certainly a well-known limb lengthening surgeon. So one of my now partners, but attendings at the time, reached out to Dr. Herzenberg and asked if I could help, if I could go up there for a couple months. And um, the rest is history. That's awesome. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Can you provide some of our listeners with what the unique challenges patients with limb deformity bring? I know that there's lots of x-rays. So people are trying sure. to use various modalities in order to see the regenerate early on. But I was wondering mm-hmm. what um, you've seen in clinic as well as in the OR. So there's different breeds of limb deformity and lengthening. So the most challenging patients are those that have congenital limb deficiencies. Um, So the top diagnoses are congenital femoral deficiency, congenital fibular deficiency to me are the top two. And the problem with those patients in particular, I try to equate it to a club foot. So when a a baby is more the club foot, the foot wants to be turned in and crooked. And then we take it and cast it, make it straight. But if you don't maintain it, it'll want to be crooked again. So for these congenital limb differences, the problem is their bone, their limb is born crooked and small. And we're gonna try to take it and stretch it and make it straight. And so it will do everything in its power to not let that happen. So contractures are common, joint dislocations can occur if you're not doing it correctly or not paying attention. Even if you are doing it correctly, it can still happen. Um, and so those are the challenges. So we see more fractures, much more complications with them. And so that's where you have to have the thickest skin 
and really be in constant communication and be obviously anticipate complications is priority number one. Um, but for limb lengthening in particular, these patients, it's not getting greedy. So don't try to go for a seven, eight centimeter lengthening, get in four and a half to five. I'd rather do multiple short, shorter limb lengthenings on a patient like that without a major complication than two or three extensive limb lengthening surgeries. So those are the hardest. Then you have your other ones that are just um, three or four centimeter limb length difference from like a hemihypertrophy where their other limb is grown abnormally large. So here you're operating on a normal sized limb and making that longer. The contractures, pain, much easier for everybody. So those are two, and actually I did two surgeries yesterday, one on hemihypertrophy, which went super easy. And the second on a revision of a revision for femoral deficiency, which was much <laughs> so um, two very different operations, two very different patients, right. but I'll equally be rewarded at the end when they do well. Oh, that's awesome. Now that you're doing a lot of work in clinics, in the operating room and research, what are your future goals and projects that you have looking forward? I know that this is probably the current pandemic is probably confusing a lot of our schedules, but what are your future projects that you're thinking of doing? So um, I do think it's important to really start looking at patient-centered outcomes. So it's not, wow, I took this leg on someone femoral deficiency and did 20 surgeries and now look, their leg is straight and their limb lengths are even. Did I help them? You know, are they more functional now than they were before? And that's important. I mean, it'll hurt the ego, um, you know, if I learn that what I did long-term may not have helped them as much as I thought, but I certainly want to be able to know that. So mm -hmm. um, for both deformity as well as OI, um, that's one of my bigger goals. And I think that's a direction that all of us in general are going. I think students are probably gonna be mandated to start including patient outcomes as part of our assessment. Um, but I think it's a good thing. The hard part is it takes time, you don't get paid to do it. Um, but understanding patient outcomes and what their beliefs are, did we do a good job? I do think is important. Um, the stuff I do, the hard part is because it's niche, it's rare. So to be able to um, pair up with other centers, I think is, is paramount. So for OI, the other two female surgeons that were on our, our um, communication are good friends of mine. So we have our own OI research going on. Um, oh, and nice. then deformity, um, I work with different surgeons, same thing, trying to start collecting and sorting data. But my specific area of interest is in um, like better utilization of the internal lengthening nails. The frames mm. are fun, the external fixers, but the second you put an external fixer on, the patients ask when can I get this off? And right. I'm saying the same thing. They're, they're just, they're hard to manage. Um, yeah. But again, I usually say the technology is amazing and it's really cool until it's on you, um, but it's there for a reason. Right, so is that the work with the precise nail and other um, items like that? So the precise nail was the first um, internal lengthening nail that was FDA approved. There's a second one that just got approved through the FDA, which is called Fitbone, which was a European nail. Um, so I don't have any experience at Fitbone, but the precise nail is a titanium internal lengthening nail. They now also have a stride nail, which is stainless steel, which is heavier, um, stronger. So now you can weight bear. So it's what's nice mm -hmm. about that is you can walk while your leg is getting lengthened. Um, right now, precisely, wow. you're on crutches for, for months while the leg mm -hmm. is being lengthened. Um, but again, and there are differences. We're learning that the strides are a little different than the uh, precise nails. 
Um, but my area of interest in that is just healing. How do the bones heal? And then really interesting, like my absolute niche is doing deformity correction with the internal lengthening nails. How much can you push those boundaries? Because there's some limits in terms of what we can do at once. Mm. But anything I can do to get a nail to not put on a frame, I'll certainly do now. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Dr. Flanagan, thank you so much for joining me. I would like to move on to my final segment for you, which I call the final five, which are five questions I ask every single surgeon that I have on the podcast. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? So I used to say putting on a hexapod external fixator. I just would get into a groove. I enjoy doing it. But the hard part is you can't see the fruits of your labor until five or six months later when it comes off. Um, right. So now my newest favorite surgery reform is uh, do, using an internal lengthening nail to correct deformity. Because um, mm-hmm. one, you see instant results in your deformity correction. Um, technically very challenging, but the techniques at least that I've come up with are really exact. So um, in some ways I'm more exact with my nail than I am with a fixer. Um, and then I still get to make somebody taller. So that's fun too. So the, the planning and the intricacies of a deforming correction nail to me are, are by far our most, my most favorite surgery I get to do. Mm, awesome. What are your go-to topics for grand round presentations? So we don't have to do a lot of grand rounds here. Um, you were asked to mostly give like topics to our residents um and they're usually chosen for me but if i had to pick a topic the title of my talk would be i can now use a nail when i used to use a frame um Mm. again fixers are are fun to use but the patients hate them um and there's challenges on the patient end and my end as well so if i can now use a nail instead of a frame i'm starting to push the boundaries which is stressful and fun at the same time right I feel like with the frames, in my mind, you're able to do a lot more of the three-dimensional deformity correction, whereas with the nail, maybe I'm just not used to it. You're just kind of, Mm -hmm. it's almost in that one plane. Is that true, or are you also able to correct the other planes with the nail? You can. You're limited on how much deformity correction you can have, so especially in the proximal tibia. But a good rule of thumb, 15 to 20 degrees in any plane, because you can use blocking screws. So if I have... A oh, mild blounts case with an inch difference. I can put a blocking screw on the lateral side, a blocking screw in the back. Um, I, you could even correct a little bit of the internal tibial torsion as long as it's not too much. The problem is when you're doing deformity correction is you injure the periosteum even more. And with the mm. nail inside, you're also injuring the ability to do endosteal healing. So you have to really wait a longer time before we start lengthening. So that's the challenge is... Um, you can't do any more deformity correction of the nail with a lengthening nail than you would without one. So again, the proximal tibia, if you if you try to do too much, you'll injure the, the vasculature and the nerve. So you can't do too much. Distal femur, it's a little bit more forgiving. Um, but sometimes some of the stuff we see is just too extreme. Um, you know, if I have a 40 degree uh, blounce, at least in the coronal plane, and then usually they're bent in procurvatum and other 40 degrees, that's too much for nail. So right. fixer to me is the only way to do it. But if you have more subtle deformities, um, 15, 20 degrees in either plane, um, I can probably now fix that with a nail when I used to use a frame. Wow, that's awesome. Oh, mm-hmm. So cool. 
Um, Hang in there. It it, gets better. It's fun. I know. I know. I know. What's so great is that we have one of our surgeons here, uh, Dr. Fremberg, is all about, you know, limb deformity. And so I've been able to scrub with cases with him. And it's just, it's it's real Mm -hmm. cool stuff. So it's just, yeah, it's awesome. It's rewarding Um, for sure. Yeah, it really is. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? So I'm going to change that a little bit. So I can't think of one specific story. Um, but my absolute favorite experience um, as an orthopedic surgeon is when I have one of my severe children, osteogenesis imperfecta. So the type three is the most severe. Mm-hmm. You know, 30 years ago, those kids didn't walk. They were in wheelchairs, chronic pain. When they come into my clinic, walking into clinic, and they all do eventually, Right. There's, there is nothing more joyous to me than that. Mm. Um, you can ju- it's such a sense of accomplishment. I know how much the parents work to do that. The kids are always smiling and they have such a, they're syndromic faces, but they're really endearing. So they're super cute. They come waddling in. They're excited beyond belief. The parents are so thrilled to show it to me. There's nothing better than that. And that is why I work as hard as I do is for that moment. Oh, that's awesome. Oh. Mm-hmm. So I know that we've talked a lot about medicine and operating, mm-hmm. but what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? So I am married. I have two uh, boys. They're six and they're eight. So they certainly take up most of my time. <laughs> um, now that we're all stuck in the house, right. um, we are really fortunate that we have a, a second home. Uh, Georgia Interestingly, the Appalachian Trail starts in North Georgia. So we have a, oh. a cabin that's in the North Georgia mountains. So we like going up to our cabin. We're going now more often. We're going hiking. We're going outside. Mm-hmm. Anything outside away from electronics is my go-to. Yes. So that's what we've been doing a lot. Oh, awesome. And my final question for you, Dr. Flanagan, is that what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Um, I think it's important to keep finding joy. Um, I think during training, it's hard. You're jaded. You're not doing exactly what you want to be doing. You're always on somebody else's schedule. Um, and then when you're in attending, not everything goes right. I mean, you're going to have, right. if you're in peds, you're going to have parents that don't like you. You're going to have complications and you have to find the joy. Um, lessons I've learned is, um, you know, there's going to be times when it gets really hard. And there's going to be a streak where every case you do, something's going to go wrong. You can't wallow in it. You're going to learn from it. You make it right and you move on. Mm-hmm. I would say don't be afraid to speak up when you need help. And whether that's emotional help or help with a patient, you know, that's your job is to make it right. So you can't, if we ideally we'd have no complications. And if we could anticipate every single one, we'd never have them. So right. I think that's super important. And then also, um, make those, have those alliances. So to me, what's been awesome about COVID, um, if there is anything awesome for me personally, it's been really establishing my connections with with my people. So I have my OI people, I have my deformity right. people, <laughs> and I've talked to them and had more meetings with them than I have my own partners. Um, right. And what's nice is they're like me. They have the same passions and interests that I do. And that's what's fun about doing this job is learning learning about this disease process these specific niches that i specifically have but it's making those connections that's what makes it all worthwhile so finding the joy whether it's your clinical practice or research practice if you have that at your at home 
but always trying to find that joy will keep you going. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Flanagan. I know that you have many things to do. And so I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thanks for reaching out. This was um, an honor and um, hopefully I was able to inspire somebody to maybe go into this field as well. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> no, I, I think you definitely did. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Jill Flanagan. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She Can Fix It Pod. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanniekirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.